That's Diva, the all-woman jazz orchestra, which is led by drummer Sherry Miracle. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. where women in jazz belong, behind the piano or the microphone. Or at least that's the popular stereotype. But it's also changing, and one of the reasons for that change is drummer Sherry Miracle. Sherry wanted to play drums, and she wanted to play jazz. And so she did, in spite of many challenges along the way. I'm going to try to give you a sense of the scope of Sherry's career. Here's a few of the jazz greats that Sherry Miracle has played with. Slam Stewart, Johnny Mandel, Clark Terry, and Dizzy Gillespie. She is a composer and an arranger in both jazz and classical music. She has a PhD in jazz composition and performance. Since 1992, Sherry Miracle has led her own big band, the internationally renowned Diva, as well as the quintet Five Play and the Diva Jazz Trio. She's a percussionist for the New York Pops and the New Jersey Symphony. And to no one's surprise, Sherry Miracle received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2009 Mary Lou Williams Festival. Sherry Miracle and the Diva Orchestra were in Washington, D.C. recently, performing at Arena Stage with Maurice Hines in the show Tappin' Through Life. Sherry Miracle and Maurice Hines are old friends, having collaborated frequently since 1990. As usual, Miracle was wearing many hats, musical director, conductor, and drummer. But she also found time to talk to me. I caught up with Sherry Miracle one evening at the arena stage before the show. I wanted to begin with the business at hand, her work with Maurice Hines in Tapping Through Life. You know what? It's it's amazing and it's fun. And the show is music I love like crazy. That Count Basie, Joe Williams, Nelson Riddle, Sinatra at the Sands Hotel, kind of just high energy swinging with great melodies and wonderful lyrics. And everybody in the band gets the chance to, to solo and improvise. And it's fun to be on stage because we're, we're part of the show. We're not just a backup group. And I think the band, because of our history with Maurice and my particularly long history with him, I think the chemistry is very good. Yeah, there's a lot of bantering between Maurice and you, and Maurice in the audience, but Maurice in the band. Yeah, because we're friends and we genuinely love and respect each other. I think it comes across. I hope we're, we're, we're having so much fun. Actually, I told somebody the other day, I said, this reminds me of my first gig with the Tune Twisters. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do something that is so awesome. And you're music director of the show. Yes. Tell me what that means. What does that involve? In the simplest way, it's making sure that all the music for the show sounds the way Maurice wants it to sound, or the way I want it to sound, but of course my allegiance is to making Maurice happy with that. So getting the right players in the right chairs, making sure that the arrangements suit the show, um, and then and conducting the show. So basically, as a drummer, I sit sort of in the middle of the band, and when my stick goes up and then down, they, they learn to follow my drumstick instead of following you know, a conductor standing in front. Did you come from a musical household when you were a kid growing up? Uh, my mom played a lot of Irish folk music and country and Western music. Her mom is from Ireland, so I'm well adept and love Irish folk music, but never was a big fan of country music. But every morning of my life, I remember waking up to that. And 
often screaming, Mom, shut that down or turn that off or, you know, something crazy because it was, it's annoying when you're trying to sleep and there's Irish music blasting. But I did grow to have a tremendous appreciation for that. But nobody listened to jazz and nobody played an instrument except I think my dad told me when he was a young kid he played the trumpet. And he liked jazz, but he didn't really play any for us. What sparked your interest in jazz? You know, it was first just music in general. I remember especially enjoying parades when my parents would take us to a parade and watching, especially all the drummers, was really interested in that part of music. When I was in fourth grade and you could take an an instrument, I immediately got excited and raced in and, oh, good, it's my chance to play an instrument. And I, I said I wanted to play the trumpet. And the teacher told me, well, I'm sorry, but girls don't play the trumpet. And girls don't play the drums and girls don't play the trombone, but you can play this. And it was a metal clarinet, which I did not like at all. So I was going to quit the band because I was so unhappy with that instrument. And I remember the music teacher calling and telling my mother, please have her stay in band because I think she's talented, please. And so I kind of reluctantly stayed in there and then simultaneously started playing the cello, which I liked a little better. And somehow in sixth grade, one of the band teachers needed someone to hit the bass drum and I left it the chance to get back there in the drum section and then started to play drums that way. And in seventh grade is the big change of my life when my teacher took me to see Buddy Rich and his Killer Force Orchestra at the Forum in Binghamton, New York. And I remember it like it happened to me yesterday. Looked down at the stage. Buddy came out in a black T-shirt after his band was already seated in tuxedos. And Buddy started with his hi-hat, you know, very famous hi-hat riff. and I thought, I don't know what that is. I never heard that, but that's what I'm going to do. And I went home and I told it to my mom. What did your mother say when you announced your future plans? I think it was one of those pats on the head, like, okay, honey, sure, she'll get over it. Like, she never heard of anything like that in her life, you know. And, uh, and I remember then very vividly announcing to my eighth grade music teacher, too, I said, I'm going to play the drums. And I was sort of playing drum set a little bit, but not at school because there were no girls doing that. And then when I got to high school, I remember I was going to audition for the jazz band, but I was afraid because no girls ever played the drums. And I talked to the teacher about it, and he said something to the effect of, well, what's wrong with you? That's ridiculous. If you want to play the drums, go play. It doesn't have have anything to do with if you're a, a boy or a girl. Go on. So I auditioned, then got in the band. Isn't it remarkable a difference a teacher can make? I mean, what if he said, oh, yeah, you're right, girls don't play drums. I mean, I I think I would have still pursued it somehow, but... But how much more difficult that path would have been. How did your peers respond to you when you were in high school playing drums? Did they think, oh, how cool, or did they think, huh? Uh, Well, you know, in high school especially, everybody sections off into all their different cliques, and my group was called the bandies. So we were all band kids and a lot of people in the band and the jazz band. It was like a grid split, 50-50 young men and young women, so I don't think it seemed unusual to them. And I think it was sort of neat. I think they thought it was cool that I was the drummer. You know, I never stopped thinking about it or ever wanted to do anything else. And I feel so lucky because I know a lot of people struggle with what am I going to do with my life. And I'm so, like a lot of artists, so, so lucky that it just found me. And I didn't really even have a choice. Like, that is what I wanted to do. And that is what I love. And I just couldn't even think of anything else. And then when you went to college, you went to the State University of New York in Binghamton. Yeah, the State University in Binghamton, which had an amazing music program. And you studied percussion there. Yeah, and also Binghamton was a hub for every show, every circus, like everything came through that on their touring paths. I was lucky enough to be hired for multiple things when I was very 
very young and first up and coming. And I can't think of a way to even replicate that kind of experience. It's something you absolutely do not get just being in a college music program. But here comes Ringling Brothers. You want to play percussion? Yes. Here comes, you know, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. You want to play that? Yes. Like everything that came through and playing in the local professional big bands and dance bands. It was just a time when all that live music was still so abundant and everywhere in the town. I played in wedding bands, I played at the Holiday Inn Lounge, I played all over the place. Do you remember your first professional gig? I do. I was a teenager and I couldn't even drive and I remember it was near my house at an Eagles club, like the Elks Club or Moose Club or whatever, and I rode my bike with my drums. I made like four trips and um, I was also working at, as a cashier at the local supermarket, the giant supermarket, but a minimum wage was probably like two dollars and thirty cents or something back then. <laughs> I played the gig, and it paid 50 or $60, and the guy told me how much it paid, and I couldn't even believe I would get paid, number one, because I loved it so much. So I forgot to get paid, and he had to bring my money to my house the next day. I just ran out so excited. And then uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I work uh, 20 hours at the supermarket and end up with like $40, and this is so weird, and I don't understand. How could I do something I love and make all this money? That's not the reason that I play the drums, though, you know. It's a miracle to me to be able to do something I love so much. Yeah, it was great encouragement at the perfect time. Yeah. You can do it and get paid for it. Yeah. Certainly living in the freelance lifestyle, it, it can be very stressful sometimes. That's why you have to love it. So you can go for weeks without work, and then you can have a lot of work, and then you work for all different price points, sometimes for free, sometimes it pays great. It's everything in between. And in between all of the work is the time that you spend practicing which is also not a paid thing. But you have to practice enough to be good enough so when you do get a call, you'll get called again. You know, so I don't think a lot of people really understand how much musicians and, and writers and dancers and other artists practice, practice, and practice alone in a room just to be good enough to come out. So if you probably divided it, a lot of musicians probably are still working for minimum wage. <laughs> when they're lucky. If you factor in their um, practice time. You met the legendary jazz bassist Slam Stewart in Binghamton, and he was really pivotal in your early career. Oh my gosh, oh yeah. Maurice quotes in his show Tapping Through Life about how these giants in their field can take very young people and nurture them. Slam did that for me, and because of him, and he, he would have concert series at the college, and I was always the drummer, and he was always bringing in these really famous people. Clark Terry, Zoot Sims, Bucky Pizzarelli. And then when I decided to move to New York, I knew all these people. And because of those, those connections, of course, it's who you know. It's like a random jazz drummer moving to New York would have trouble navigating. But because of them, and because of Slam, all these doors were immediately open. And I had introductions to places and people that might have taken me years to, to get to otherwise. Did you have to work through gender bias when you got to New York, working yeah. as a jazz drummer? Yeah, and not even in New York when I moved there in 1985, but today, yes, still the same. The whole thing is very well documented in this great documentary film called The Girls in the Band that Diva's a part of, and it just came out about a year and a half ago, and it's, it starts with the earliest possible history of women instrumentalists only in jazz, and it goes all the way through the point of Esperanza Spalding winning the Grammy Award for Best New Artist, beating out Justin Bieber. The project of the girls in the band is really remarkable because you can hear women. There's a drummer named Viola Smith who's 101, and the stuff she talks about is almost identical to many things that still happen today. Such as? Such as women not being taken seriously as artists. Well, wear a costume, you know, show some cleavage, put on tons of makeup. Nah, we don't, you don't have to play that good. You're just there. It's, you're just a gimmick. You're just a novelty. Eye candy. Yeah. I think for any 
for any band or any orchestra, seeing all men, it's almost still the norm. It, it is, it is, absolutely. When I moved to New York, I used to go to a jam session every night at the, uh, the Blue Note. Every night after the last set till about 4 a.m., and I would sit there, I would put my name on the list, hardly ever get called, or if I got called, it would be a ballad, and the, the leader of the session would say, can you handle this, honey, and it would be a slow tempo, or other times, well, I'll let you sit in if you take your shirt off. You know, just ridiculous. And when I was much younger, I actually, I just thought to myself, these people are so dumb. What do they mean? I'm a drummer. This is what I do. I mean, why are they saying those stupid things? I didn't realize how um, embedded in society and people's psyche that is. Like, I didn't really understand the, the deep roots of sexism and gender bias and things like that in, in jazz until I got a little bit older. You're the leader of Diva, which is an all-women jazz orchestra. What gave you the idea for this? It was actually the idea of a man named Stanley Kay, who is also the manager and conductor and drummer for Maurice Hines and Gregory Hines, 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 and Dad. And in 1990, I was just the pickup drummer for an orchestra at the Schubert Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. It was their 75th anniversary. And Stanley Kay came in with Maurice Hines, and I played their act. And I loved Stanley Kay because he was the uh, manager and assistant drummer for the Buddy Rich Band. And I knew him by reputation. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. It's Stanley Kay. And uh, Maurice's music was really swinging, like the music I love playing more than anything. And I made a point to talk to Stanley at the reception afterwards and tell him I would have pleasure to meet him. And so I started playing drums with Maurice just after that point. That was 1990. And then, you know, I was in touch with Stanley. And then Stanley called me in 1992 and said, I have an idea. Do you um, know women that play as well as you? Big compliment. And I said, I actually do. And he said he wanted to start an all-woman band. He had been with Heinz Heinz and Dad and Maurice, and he was in the, a lot in the theater world and had big jazz roots, had a great career, but he was in theater. Now he wanted to come back to music. And he said, I would, yeah, I would never try it in this day and age with uh, just a regular big band. But, you know, he liked the way I played and thought, you know, it would be cool to do this with, with women. And I, who had previously just stayed away almost like a plague from all women projects because of those stereotypes that I alluded to before. <laughs> but Stanley was so serious. And this is the guy that managed Buddy Rich. He knows what great music is. And that's all he cared about, which was amazing because I knew so many women that were not being given high-end musical opportunities because it was so difficult just for them to even get called. So in 1992, we had an audition in New York and about 40 women came from all over the place. And then we put together the original band, which is 15 players, and we just took off from there. Our first gig was in, it was March 30th of 1993 at New York University. And were you always swinging? Yeah, that was Stanley's musical ideal for jazz, and it's, it's mine too. Diva's music is the other amazing perk for me because Stanley and I had the same general feeling about what jazz is to us. I mean, jazz is so many different things, but to me it's uh, great melodies, can be like a challenging chart, it can be complicated harmony, it can be anything, but I really want it to swing and I want it to be accessible for the audience and challenging and exciting for the players. You know, that's that's what I love to play. As a challenge myself as a musician to play any kind of music, I went through my phases in college of writing, you know, I'd say weird jazz or 
the more esoteric, like, oh, look how cool this is. Nobody can tell what we're doing. No one can even tell if it's music. <laughs> you know, that's, a, I think, a phase a lot of creative people would have to go through and experimenting in all different sorts of genres within your field. Again, a lesson learned from, from Maurice Hines was just tell the truth, be true to who you are, what your soul is calling to you to do and what kind of music, and just do that, you know, and don't try to be all kinds of other things that you're not, you know, to try to be cool or try to, like, make yourself, um, well, jazz needs to be this way, or that's cool and that's what all the cutting-edge people are doing. I think you can still play music that's, like, really sophisticated, which all of Diva's music is very sophisticated and, and challenging and fun, and the audience likes it, and people smile and tap their foot, and I view myself as, a yes, an artist, of course, but a, an entertainer. Tommy Newsom was a big supporter. Yeah, he was so great. We used to call him Tom Tom. How did you connect with him? Through Stanley and through the Buddy Rich connection that Tommy obviously you knows a great arranger and composer from the ex-Tonight Show band with Doc Severinsen. And Stanley knew Tommy, and Stanley asked Tommy to start writing charts for us, and he ended up really, really loving the Diva Jazz Orchestra. So he wrote dozens and dozens of pieces of music for us. Often we would ask him for something specific, but sometimes he would just say, I thought of you guys, I wrote this, and it would be an amazing chart that he gifted to us just about everything he ever gave us. I mean, he, that's a, unbelievable. One, he could have commanded any amount of money for arranging anything, and he just, no, this is for you. Hey, I love you guys, and I believe in you, and he did that. miss him. He was so funny and so generous and so talented. Great man. Another great man, Dr. Billy Taylor. Great man, great. He did so much with women and jazz. He headed jazz programming at Kennedy Center. I sure know that. <laughs> Can you just say a few words about him? Yeah, I think Stanley and Billy were friends for a number of years. When Billy started the Mary Lou Williams Festival, we performed at the first festival, which was, I think, 16 or 17 years ago now. And then just about every other year or so, we would be present either with Diva or with our sister group five play in some format at that festival, which was amazing. But the other thing that Billy did, besides being a tremendous advocate for equality, I mean, in women, jazz, et cetera, when the Kennedy Center had their 25th anniversary, Billy was putting, that big television show, Billy was putting together a jazz segment for it, and he, he chose Diva to be the featured band on that show with Dee Dee Bridgewater and him. Then I was just like, oh, that's such a great gig. When I think about it now, I'm like, well, he could have picked any band in the whole world would have like flipped with joy to do that. And we were flipped with joy, but he said, this is a great band. I want to make sure they get recognition and they deserve to be presented in this this form. And he, and he did that. And that, that was such an amazing thing he did. And he, he gave us a segment on CBS Sunday Morning. Diva's been together for 20 years. As you're performing, do you see audiences responding less to you as an all-woman jazz orchestra and more as jazz players? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both of those things. I think, I don't like to say it, but I think sometimes people are surprised when they look at the band. And I'd like, I'll give you an example. Once we were on a long tour in the Midwest and a guy wrote a review, and the review said, the last thing I wanted to do on Saturday night was go see a bunch of girls play a watered-down version of In the Mood. And then he said, boy, was I wrong. 
But I think those slow stereotypes that are so hard to get rid of, I think just follow you around. <laughs> so I think people may think that. And then once they hear us play, they're like, oh, this is amazing and very serious. And, you know, the band comes with a high energy and power and, and we're going to swing you out of your seat. How do you think women can be more encouraged to get into jazz? Yeah, I, I don't know. And this has been since I was a you know, much younger too and started playing. I think first of all, you have to somehow like it yourself. Like I stumbled on jazz by chance. And I think that's a possible way to first be introduced to it. But I, I really think that it's um, the shame that it's not easily accessible like pop music is. You know, it's not in the face of young people, like you're bombarded constantly with images of all the pop and rock stuff, but definitely not of jazz at all. So you really have to seek it out. And once you're introduced to it, and if you get bitten by a jazz bug, I mean, it's so easy now to find everything on the internet, which was amazing. You can see and hear almost anything you want. You also freelance as a classical musician. Yes, I did a, much more of that than I have in recent years. But, yeah, I do play percussion instruments. I studied it in college, of course, and I am the drum set player in the New York Pops since since 1990. Actually, the, the day I met Stanley and Maurice is also the day that the conductor of that orchestra, which I'm really happy to tell you, was Skitch Henderson, who was the founder of the New York Pops. And Skitch Henderson was walking out the door, and I thought, oh, it's Skitch Henderson, and I made myself say hello to him, which I didn't want to, <laughs> but I don't know why. I was afraid or didn't want to bug him. Mr. Henderson, it was so nice to play with you. Thank you for this experience. And he looked at me, and he goes, you, I want you to come play with the New York Pops. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and that was in May of 1990, and in August, I was playing with the New York Pops at, at the Columbus Avenue Street Fair without a rehearsal, and then he offered me the next season of work, and, um, and then I became the drummer with the New York Pops. Can you talk just a little bit about the difference between playing with the New York Pops, or I know you played with the New Jersey Symphony. I do, yeah. Orchestras, too, and playing jazz. The Pops Orchestra plays a lot of different styles of music. With Diva, I know what the style is more or less within the contemporary swing genre, but the Pops, my gosh, of course we can do, be doing any kind of classical repertoire, in which case I will play percussion. I mean, we have, my section mates in the New York Pops are geniuses, so, you know, I do my small part back there when it's called for with the classical repertoire, but then also it could be a John Williams film celebration, any kind of Broadway music. I mean, we've played with Kid Rock. we played with Chet Atkins the Oak Ridge Boys. I mean, all, all sorts of different genres of music, rock, pop, jazz, Celtic festival. It's all different sorts of music. So I think that's an important thing for all musicians is find have the thing that you love the most that drives your heart, so to speak. But if you want to make a living, I think it's really important to be able to do a lot of different things. Is what you do at the New York Pops when you come back and work with Diva, do you find that it stretched you in a way that serves you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I can't think of any sort of music I've ever played in my life that hasn't given me more information about being a better musician. And now, I mean, it's absolutely insane with the internet, with the amount of world music you can listen to. You know, everything is going to inform you in some way. Jazz musicians obviously have some of the best technique imaginable because you, you have to, <laughs> but they're extraordinary technicians and artists and creative and and classical players are that too. In a different way, it's hard to describe it. What I learned at the Pops was an incredible range of dynamic control. Skitch used to have the orchestra playing so soft in Carnegie Hall. I remember thinking, I've never played this soft in my life, especially on the drum set, but in Carnegie Hall where the orchestra has our season, it's perfect. So I learned different things about phrasing and 
musical affects and then said, oh, wow, well, how would this be if we do it with a, a jazz orchestra, which traditionally, I guess, has a louder level of dynamics and more of a, like, oomph at all times. And I learned a lot of the more subtle, beautiful technique. It's such an odd time, I think, for jazz, because on one hand, it's wonderful that it's now in universities recognized as a legitimate form of music study. But on the other hand, it means a lot of jazz is coming out of universities as opposed to the old jam sessions that used to happen. And there's always something lost, something gained. That is um, one of the constant debates of everyone who's in jazz and teaching jazz. And well, now that it's so academic, like that's almost the goal is like, well, yes, I'm gonna go to school and study jazz and be in the school environment. And then maybe then I'll teach jazz. As in my experience, what I'm realizing is less and less places even have jazz clubs. Where are all the jobs? You know, when I was at NYU, I used to always say to the kids, okay, you're here, you're spending, you know, a billion dollars <laughs> to get a, a performance degree in jazz. Who do you want to play with? I don't know, I just want to play. Where? Give me some examples. And then they would often not say anything. I mean, when I was young, my dream was to play with the Woody Herman band. I love that band so much. And it helps to have some kind of a goal. And with the level of talent in the schools, I mean, it, the level of musical proficiency and the, having the technique of being a good instrumentalist has probably never been higher in human history. But I think in some ways, like you said, there's probably less creativity because everybody's learning the same things where you, when the music was being formed and developed, it was by a lot of great innovators who really did change it from beginning of ragtime through players like, of course, Louis Armstrong, very pivotal, and Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. I mean, those, those three people changed music. They, they really did, and I don't think that that has happened, in my opinion, probably since Coltrane. I mean, changed it. It was like, what? <laughs> like, no one ever heard that before. It's really tough to make a living in jazz. Oh, yeah. But just to think about what that means in, in literally playing jazz for a living is, I, I think it's rare. I don't think a lot of people do it. Just play jazz is what I mean. You know, there's a few, of course, the great, the great stars, but people also function as teachers and composers and... It's not even just women, it's anyone making a living in jazz and going into it professionally. You really, really have to love it. The jobs are less and less, or if there are jobs, the thing that's ruined it for people actually making a living from it is there's, especially in a city like New York, work for the door. Artists are responsible to fill the house on their own or they don't even get the door or they get part of the door. And there's so many thousands of great, talented people that want the opportunity to play. They'll do that. You're taking this incredible talent and you're just giving it away and begging people to listen. And then, of course, the club owners are happy. They don't have to pay for any of the music. And it's, it's just, it's a strange, it's a strange sort of cycle of where are you going to be able to, to support jazz so people can actually make a living doing that. All of this affects the way that people perform on stage because there's no place to get experience in performance. And no matter how great a collegiate band might be or a university band, it's very different than playing professionally. Very, very different. Well, what you're bringing to the stage right now, as we mentioned earlier, is Tapping Through Life with Maurice Hines. That is a show that feels spontaneous. You know, it's, it's obviously it's, that show has a format, but it's slightly different every night because there's a heavy jazz element in it. We're improvisers. Maurice is certainly a, you know, an improviser, and he's very connected to the audience. I learned that a lot from him, and I, I asked Maurice once, when I first started playing with him, I said, how come you walk out on the stage and people are like berserk with happiness already? How do you do that? And he, he does have a, a lot of great charisma, but when he steps out there, he really, really, really loves it. And he loves the audience. He wants the audience to be happy. 
and he knows what he's good at. And I, I, that's what I was saying at the beginning of our talk is I try to adopt the same thing for Diva, that I know what we're good at when we're genuine about it. A, a woman in one of the talkbacks here asked me, did someone direct you to do that? All that smiling. Are you faking it up there? And I'm like, no, we're really, I'm really happy. I mean, I'm so happy to have this opportunity to play with Maurice in it. I want to contribute to the joy because that's how, that's how I feel. That was Sherry Miracle. She's a drummer and leader of the big band, Diva. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, poet Shelja Patel. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.